0: to the 438th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today I welcome Jonathan Catlin and Benjamin Davis to discuss their work, Theses for Theory in a Time of Crisis reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime, recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, as of February 28, 2022, 5,954,340 people have lost their lives globally according to Johns Hopkins. 5,954,340 have lost their lives to COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. This is The Life of William Garrison. This was written by Josiah Bates and appeared in Time magazine in an online feature about COVID deaths. This appeared May 27th, 2021. After 44 years behind bars as a juvenile lifer, William Garrison was set to be released from the Macomb Correctional Facility in Michigan on May 6, 2020. But just three weeks short of that date, on April 13, 2020, he died of complications from the coronavirus. He was 60 and one of 39 inmates to die from COVID-19 in Michigan Department of Corrections facilities as of April 28, 2020. Garrison's sister, Yolanda Peterson, supported her brother during his decades behind bars and had been preparing a room for him in her home when he was released. It was approved by a parole officer just one day before his death. My brother shouldn't have died in there like that, Peterson told the Detroit Free Press. He was looking forward to getting out. At 16, at age 16, Garrison was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. In 1976, he was recently resentenced following a 2018 Supreme Court ruling that banned life without parole sentences for minors, and was offered parole in February 2020. However, he turned it down because he felt the court had done him an injustice with his original sentence, according to a correctional office spokesperson in Michigan, Chris, uh, Chris Gouts Carr- Garrison. Had accrued more than 7,000 days of good time credit while incarcerated and thought he should be allowed to be freed without parole, Gouts tells Time magazine. This was just an unfortunate case all the way around. Harrison was later identified among prisoners vulnerable to COVID-19 as it began spreading in jails and prisons across the United States and was included in a Michigan Department of Corrections list of parole-eligible inmates who could have been released early. Although he had consented to be paroled on those grounds, Garrison died while waiting to hear if the county prosecutor's office would appeal his case. Other Macomb inmates have since said Garrison's cellmate had been sick prior to his death, Yolanda Peterson claims. Michigan Department of Corrections spokesperson Chris Gout says that Garrison had not reported any symptoms or illness. He was tested for the coronavirus only after his death and that his cellmate, tested negative. E. Hahn, Garrison's attorney, told the Free Press he was passionate about advocating for incarcerated people and helping them with legal matters. I really do think that if he was here, he would want his death to shed light on the dire situation that those others are facing in the Michigan Department of Corrections. The life of William Garrison, who died April 13th, 2020, from COVID 19. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation. I've really been looking forward to this one. Let me introduce my guests to you. Jonathan Catlin is a PhD candidate in the Department of History and the Interdisciplinary Doctoral Program in the Humanities at Princeton University. His dissertation is a history of the concept of catastrophe in 20th century European thought, spanning from the rise of fascism to climate change with a focus on the writings of the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory and Intellectual Responses to the Holocaust. He's applied his critical work on the concept of catastrophe in public writings on the pandemic through a series of collaborations with Benjamin Davis, published in Public Seminar, as well as an article in Memory Studies that interrogates the multi-directional memory politics of the COVID AIDS analogy in an American context. I'm going to talk about those writings. My second guest is Benjamin P. Davis. Benjamin is a postdoctoral fellow in ethics at the University of Toronto's Center for Ethics. His current research brings together human rights and decolonial thinking. It includes the articles, What Could Human Rights Do? A Decolonial Inquiry, which appeared in Transmodernity in 2020, The Promises of Standing Rock, and Human Rights and Caribbean Philosophy Implications for Teaching, which appeared in 2021. Outside of his work on human rights, his research considers the concepts of Edouard Glissant and Simon Bile, and with a view toward political belonging in the present. Jonathan Catlin and Ben Davis, welcome to COVID Calls.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks.
0: I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there. And Jonathan, let me start with you on that.
1: Well, I am based in New York City um, where things are drastically improving and I think we're one of the most recent states um, where a mask mandate has been lifted, uh, will be lifted soon, including in schools. Um, so it's it's feeling on the up.
0: In terms of you know people's individual behavior, so far as you can notice such things these days, what do you see with with masking? With distance, are there any vestiges of those behaviors at at this point? Or are people pretty much moved into something that looks pre-March 2020?
1: Well, I can say um, I only moved to New York in uh, New York City. I'm in Brooklyn uh, in June of this year. Um, so my perception of the city has been interesting based on where I was before. I was in Berlin for the first six months of the pandemic where there was virtually no COVID. Um, and for example, people didn't wear masks outside. That was never, there was never evidence for that. It was never required. Um, and then I lived in rural Illinois where next to no one wore masks um, for about nine months. Uh, so then moving here, um, it was interesting to see a city that was really still pretty traumatized, I would say. Um, and even, uh, you know, well after the moment, um, for example, last summer, uh, where COVID was pretty low here, um, people were still pretty strict, you know, with all sorts of regulations. Um, so at the moment, I would say, you know, on places like the subway, you pretty much see, you know, 95% mask wearing. Um, but in in businesses and such now, um, that's now becoming optional.
0: That's quite a trio of places to bring into some sort of comparative. Mm mm-hmm analysis jonathan berlin rural illinois and new york city we will, we'll get to that probably at some point in our conversation of what that panorama might mean in terms of making sense of this pandemic ben let me turn to you same question where you're calling from and what's the pandemic looking like there
2: yeah although i'm based in toronto i'm visiting my parents right now in rural central minnesota uh the cdc still has her county as high uh, but the ICU at the hospital here uh, about a week ago had uh, more non-COVID cases than COVID cases. So mm-hmm. it was a turning point um, for that. Uh, in terms of discernible behavior, I mean, I visited my parents last uh, here in between uh, kind of Delta and Omicron, and nobody was really wearing masks. I I had my kind of Toronto habits built in, masked everywhere. And uh, Costco was an adventure, to say the least. So, (laughs) and that's continued. There aren't a lot of
0: masks uh, here. Dan, let me stay with you. I've been asking guests if they would share a personal memory of the pandemic. And I'd like to ask you that question, something that really stands in for you, an event or an association that really connects you with this time
2: yeah I, I have in mind uh i was in minneapolis um with my brother and his partner the day of uh the verdict of uh the chauvin trial and i remember we uh the coffee shop we had been going to workhorse kind of between minneapolis and saint paul and kind of, uh queer space everybody's on the hustle the police cars have been parked outside for days and uh the city felt increasingly um under occupation uh and we went we drove after the verdict uh downtown first and then uh by the cup foods where george floyd was murdered and uh to sort of pay our respects and be part of the celebration uh and found a parking spot somehow and i remember walking through one of the art galleries there, Nokomis, uh art gallery, that had become a reflection of Minneapolis in that moment to some extent, and there were too many people in the in the little gallery; was quite small. And the person, sort of working there, said, "You know, uh, we're at capacity. People, uh, some people have to leave. This is what community looks like." So I left uh, the space, but I remember thinking. You know, it was uh, that moment was something of a hint of uh, people are uh, wearing masks, respectful of each other. You have a context of unbelievable force and and state force uh, that that the context is mediated by, but this moment in that. In, on this road with other people celebrating something where there isn't a, that mediation of state force and someone is instead, you know, communicating honestly, openly with someone else saying someone has to leave whatever it is where at capacity. So it was a it, it, it felt refreshing, probably in the face of everything else that was going on in the city at that moment that that kind of communication uh, persisted. Uh, and and so that that's one of my
0: strongest memories of uh, COVID life. Thank you for sharing that. And and it's actually, you know, there was a fair amount of um, of media coverage and public health advice during the sort of summer of protests about how people can support each other and protest safe, safely with COVID. Unfortunately, I think a lot of that media coverage was. Was framing it around the question of how can public health officials say people should go out and protest in the middle of a pandemic? And, and, you know, so, but then that kind of died down. But I feel like I hadn't heard much about gatherings since then, which must have been ongoing in a very serious way throughout that entire time up to the point of the verdict. And I assume still, you know, you're describing a, a space in which people are still gathering to be together to continue to think about talk about and honor george floyd or think about that violence and they have to gather together i i hadn't i I hope someone has been sort of collecting that that history of those gatherings in the context of covid
2: yeah definitely i think that was part of the intention of the gallery which i should also mention was sort of open air to the extent that the doors open (laughs) to the outside uh but yeah, and this, you know, I take it as part of your work with the, all of these COVID calls. Why well, I do it every day while we need an archive.
0: Yeah, thank you for bringing that uh, bringing that memory to us. Jonathan, I want to ask you the, the same thing, sort of the impossible question. You have three different settings, I guess, to pull from, but uh, what really sticks in your memory?
1: Yeah, well, I'll connect two of them, um, which is basically as someone who, you know, I got my training basically in Holocaust studies and Holocaust memory. um, It's just been shocking for me to see um, all of these Holocaust analogies um, blossom over the the last two years. And so the first time I remember seeing this in person was uh, graffitied on the building next to mine, which faces a big public park in Berlin. Um, Corona Corona dictatorship. this idea that the lockdowns in Germany, which at the time were not even remarked particularly strong um, because they were pretty evidence-based. They were not really as sweeping as they were in other parts of Europe that were harder hit by the pandemic. Um, So comparatively pretty mild, um, but you would still see this analogy. And then I was in Berlin um, when the first of these really big anti-COVID regulation protests started happening. And, you know, that day you really did see a lot of people in like tinfoil hats and just conspiracy theorists um, in general. But it was associated with uh, the right wing party, the AFD and that uh, protest. You know, there were photos taken that I saw of people um, using the, you know, the um, people who don't wear masks are like Jews and like these kinds of analogies. And now the current iteration of that. I think the latest scandals with, uh, RFK junior, this kind of anti-vax, um, uh, publicist public figure, um, is that the unvaccinated are like Jews. So it's just been, you know, fascinating to see why that, uh, why so many people, um, reach for that analogy. And that's kind of part of the kind of thinking, um, that informed me in my memory studies piece was, uh, much, much smarter and uh, people with better politics um, but, uh, with good intentions reaching for the the AIDS crisis analogy, um, even, you know, at, and sometimes in helpful ways, uh, politically interesting ways, um, but very often just in this um, kind of knee jerk, you know, mnemonic way where this really is the association that people people have and that they found find powerful and find, you know, politically motivating for their cause Um, and then when I moved back to Illinois, um, where I'm from, I like, right, right away, I noticed all these yard signs saying never again. And what they meant was never again, lockdown. And so even, you know, in a totally different context, a place that has no historical connection to the Holocaust, um, you know, this phrase that was really coined by Holocaust memory is, uh, being used in this totally different context, um, And again, if you just think about this comparatively, you know, the lockdowns in rural Illinois were nothing like uh, the kind of um, strict measures that were actually seen all over the world. So I suppose these things are all sort of relative, but um, as I'm sure you've explored on the podcast, you know, striking to see how really politicized um, the reactions to pandemic regulations became.
0: Well, thank you for sharing those. I think we'll... um... We'll probably come back around to some of that in our in our conversation. But one part of that, I just want to make sure I understand. So the, the graffiti, so it, it says COVID dictator.
1: Dictatorship, yeah.
0: COVID dictatorship. So that's really, because there's there's two pieces to that, right? There's one which is invoking a group of people as somehow similar to Holocaust victims because they're being required to do something by the state. And then the other side of that, which is there's a malefactor out there. There's an authoritarian out there. I mean, the two are connected, but it's interesting to think about them slightly separately, too. I mean, what is the COVID dictatorship in in Germany or Berlin? Is that somehow focused on public health authorities or is that more just a free-floating concept? Because uh, the United States, of course, Tony Fauci has become on the right. He has been invoked multiple times now, and I suppose the Republican Party plans to run against him in 2024, from what I've heard, as the COVID dictator of the United States.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, the the reason that it was so shocking to me was basically because the regulations in Berlin I found to be eminently rational, so everything was controlled on this Um, traffic light system where, you know, if cases were rising by such a degree or, you know, hospital um, availability, uh, if you had three red lights on these different metrics um, or maybe even uh, one red light and two yellow lights or something, um, then like new lockdown measures were implemented in this very rational way where, you know, first these kinds of discretionary businesses would close and schools and things like this. So it really was a very science-driven system um, that was meant precisely not to have, you know, consolidated power and to seem arbitrary or, or to seem politicized. Um, but it just seems like all over the world, basically, you saw the same kind of resistance and the idea that any any form of regulation was mm. um, was a dictatorship, wasn't a total overreach into the private lives of citizens. And of course, the, the whole concept of dictatorship is extremely loaded in a place that not only experienced the Nazi, this is what's fascinating about the German case, mm. You know, it, Berlin not only experienced the Nazi um, history, but also the history of the largest police state in the communist bloc um, of the Soviet Union and a society that's a, in general very averse to technology and very suspicious of um, government overreach, uh, data collection, these kinds of things. Mm. So the, the legacies of these two dictatorships loom very large.
0: Let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking today to Jonathan Catlin and Ben Davis about critical theory in the time of COVID. And I want to turn, um, to that, to a project that you worked on together. You were very busy throughout the pandemic in your work and very early, um, March 30th of 2020 published a piece called theses for theory in a time of crisis. And we were chatting just a little bit before, I went back, I remember reading these, I remember promoting these on social media and coming back to these in conversation um, with people uh, throughout the pandemic. I want to ask you, we're going to talk about some of the theses, but let's just talk first about um, you know why you came together to write something at that point in the pandemic that was really uh, moving outside of the news cycle. I mean, you were proposing a set of ideas to really, I think, force people in a helpful way to think really structurally about what they were seeing unfolding in the daily news. Jonathan, let me start with you on this and then Ben, I'll come, come to you just about how you, how you first hatched the project.
1: Well, I do think it was Ben's idea uh, as I recall, but um, what was so interesting about it is that we were very conscious of the fact that we were early um and that was part of the whole project and it was interesting that we got we reflect on this in our kind of postmortem on the project um you know we got a lot of people who declined to participate because this was march of 2020 and um there were all these responses that are like you know no i want things to settle more um i'm just disoriented right now you know these are scholar. these like are our favorite scholars like people we really respect um who just wanted to kind of take a back seat and uh, were wary of you know, what academic theory could really offer. Um, that said, it was amazing to get these over 30 short interventions um, of all sorts of different disciplinary perspectives that reflected on the pandemic and I think highlighted what theory can do in an open-ended enough way that I don't think, for example, we would have to you know retract any of the theses, or, or that people would really want to change or correct, um, much in them. They were written in this sort of um, bold, ambitious, but also tentative and humble um, way, trying to show, yeah, what theory can do in a time of crisis. And um, I'll just briefly say, like, our our prompts to the uh, contributors: um, we invoke Marx and we invoke E.P. Thompson. And the E.B. Thompson quote is that um, something along the lines of that it's the duty of the left um, to highlight uh, what is possible in our age. And we also made this kind of nod that, you know, critique has run out of steam, that it was too, too easy and too cheap to simply point out um, the failings of the Trump administration, for example. That's not the kind of intervention we were hoping for. That was already everywhere. Um, we wanted to give people kind of hope. Um, visions of possible transformation and, you know, highlight um, inequalities and these kinds of critical angles on the pandemic, but also beauty.
0: Ben, let me bring you in kind of the same question, just in terms of um, you know, getting the project started. And I'm, in, I'm particularly taken with Jonathan's point that people might have expressed some hesitation And and I wonder about that in part because maybe um, they didn't feel it was the right time to do critical analysis or because they didn't know how things were going to unfold. You never know why people want to hold back their analysis. Uh, And it's good to sort of cast our listeners memory back to late March of 2020. Things were bad in the United States, but the terrible April had not happened yet.
2: Exactly. Yeah, that's, something i've been reflecting on too in terms of coming to talk about these pieces uh to your audience that this was a time still when john and i were writing this when uh protest in the u.s was largely uh part of the right in terms of showing up at state capitals or something to to challenge what was happening and it seemed like people on the left were trying to reconcile this tension between staying inside and being a kind of responsible co-citizen with what something like protest, uh, uh, could look like. And then, um, you know, most of us in practice, as it always happens, the answer, uh, came very quickly in the necessity of, um, uh, mourning together or, uh, being in the street together, reclaiming public space together, that happened following uh, the murders of, of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and many others. Uh, so that so so it was early. It was the right was mostly sort of protesting. Um, mm-hmm. and as John was saying, uh, we wanted to do something at a level of abstraction kind of one level of abstraction, perhaps, from uh, a news take, something like this. And uh, some of the people, I mean, I was reading a lot of Stuart Hall at that time. And and I think John and I, I know, I should just tell the audience this came about in part because in 2016, John and I were going to a play in New York and somebody had just written some theses on Trump's election. And we just kind of talked about it. You know, I just bring this up, talk about this with my students sometime in terms of, you know, you just have a conversation in the city about theses. That's a good idea. And then in 2020, I was kind of thinking, oh, I remember talking to John in New York about theses responding to trump's election perhaps we could write something so i i think i sent him a a google doc you know i was in st louis he was in berlin and i don't know I, i had filled out like one three five and seven or something and i said you know take two through eight and then we'll we'll read each other's and whatever so uh yeah that's how it came about and and some of our goals at that time
1: I think yeah, let me... was the, the philosopher so ahead Martin ahead. Schuster's um, thesis, right? Okay, that's who
2: it was. Thank you. I, I need so. you remember. remember. I mean, yeah.
1: Really, anyways, really thoughtful example of what, um, you know, great, um, someone who's just versed in critical theory, but also just has a lens to, you know, religion and ethics, um, how, how they can shed light on, you know, a particular political moment. Um, and then just to build on Ben's point about uh, protest, that is a really interesting um, observation about the timeline of the project that when we started it it was really the right wing that was protesting. and then by the time we ended it in early May, we ended it partly because um, of the racial uprisings that had broken up, uh, out across the world. and it, it seemed like you know this was the time to to be in the streets um, mm. and we had sort of set our peace and wanted to hand over the baton. Um, but that was obviously the moment of progressive protest.
0: So I'll put up the link so people can find these. Um, but let me just ask you, uh, and I'm going to stay with you, John, first on on this. and I'm going to run through a few of these. I mean, they're written in such a way, at least the initial prompt is written in such a way you could sort of absorb this quite quickly, but uh, they take some time to to unravel and they're interlaced with links that take you to all kinds of interesting, um, interesting supporting materials and then sets of interviews that you've done as well, which is sort of an adjacent um, project. But the first is catastrophe is not to come, but here and now. I'm quoting from from the theses. Before the current pandemic, our way of life was already killing life on earth. State selections of who shall live and who shall die already produced medical shortages. And you quote Walter Benjamin, that things are status quo is the catastrophe. It's not an ever-present possibility, but what is in each case given. So John... Talk a little bit more about catastrophe and why you lead with that as the first sort of theses, first of the theses to help us make sense of the COVID disaster.
1: Uh, well, this is the topic uh, that I've been cursed to write my dissertation on, uh, catastrophe that I've been working on for like 10 years. All dissertations are
0: cursed. Don't feel, <laughs> don't feel bad. It's yeah. Just the,
1: yeah, but what's uh, what's striking and what's original about Benjamin's uh, theory in which I'm writing the history of in my first dissertation chapter is a history of the idea of, of history itself as a permanent catastrophe. Um, and Benjamin, it's a really provocative thesis that, you know, historically, the concept of catastrophe basically meant something like revolution or sudden uh, overturning or downturn. And Benjamin turns the concept on its head and says, actually, what seem like these sudden events that arise out of nowhere are actually part of history as usual, Um, which we can qualify in various ways to mean something like, um, you know, modern history or um, the history of, you know, late capitalist societies or something like that. Um, And Benjamin turned to that idea in a moment of crisis in Weimar in the 1920s. As German, the German economy was collapsing, German democracy was collapsing. And, um, you know, the, the story that's told about the original Frankfurt theorists is that they wanted to explain why, uh, basically why peop- the working classes were turning to fascism um, rather than to, you know, supporting democracy and uh, communism or more pro- progressive uh, forms of social democratic politics. So, in this moment, um, this is also connected to thesis number three, in which we cite your work, Scott. Um, this idea that disaster is social uh, as well as natural. Um, we wanted to, you know, um, denaturalize the idea of, of crisis and of catastrophe. And a through line, I think, through all of these theses is that we wanted to really get, uh, critique the idea of a return to normal. Mm. Um, which was really being trumpeted at the time uh, by the Trump administration. You know, this is all going to be over by Easter, um, these kinds of lines. And um, yeah, there was an idea that, you know, we wanted to say, uh, wait a minute, uh, if the pandemic might be a moment of transformation, like we don't we don't want to return to normal. Um, And that's, you know, not it's a missed opportunity, but it's also uh, really a danger. and there's also a thesis about the, sh- what Naomi Klein calls the shock doctrine, uh, which is exactly this kind of, uh, pol- political intervention as well. Um, saying like, let's, let's be conscious and democratic, um, and use, um, crises, not as moments to retrench the inequalities of the status quo, but, um, to expose them and, you know, possibly, uh, reflect on them and change them. And I think, um, some versions of this have really, uh, happened in the pandemic response—that you know, things that no one would have thought would be politically possible um, in the United States, in the United States, in this in this day, uh, have been achieved by the Biden administration, and actually with a lot of them with bipartisan support, uh, huge you know state interventions to address um, things like child poverty and um, uh, inequality, and healthcare uh, access. So in yeah, in a sense. Um, I think this idea, you know, that that history is a permanent catastrophe, is nevertheless compatible with the more, you know, optimistic moments um, in the theses, where we wanted to show, uh, you know, a critique of the present, but also moments of transformation.
0: Let me pick up on this and um, on the, the third one, which you cited is the um, his, about history, and I'm just going to read again from this. History orients <laughs> us in contingency. The past offers not lessons for the present, but potential histories that point to how this moment could yet be otherwise. It allows us to see that disaster is social as, as well as natural. And that really, uh, that resonates For me, and I think for a lot of historians who were asked early in the pandemic to to offer up lessons from previous disasters. And I know, you know, when when journalists are covering disaster, I mean, it's a terrible beat to cover because it's wildly divergent in the kinds of stories that reporters are asked. It could be asked to recover climate, cover climate change to, uh, you know, auto accident pile up on the interstate or something like that. But, you know, we were asked, and I wasn't the only one, um, what are the lessons of history for this moment? And particularly, mm-hmm. what are the lessons, I was asked this several times, what are the lessons of 1918 for this moment? And my answer was always insufficient because I sort of give kind of two answers, and I can never, rem- I can't decide which was less satisfactory for the journalists I was talking to. One is, um, we shouldn't use history that way, because, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of strips the co- context off of that time and what people might have thought was relevant, then would we'll mean something particular to that moment. And, and we, mm-hmm. you know, history is not a, a, a storehouse of lessons for us to apply to our current problems. But then the other was mm-hmm. talking about the, it, the really powerful historical erasure that happened And happens continually with disaster. And Ben, let me bring this, you know, this, this point to you and and see if it resonates with the theses, because when you start to invoke history, uh, as a set of lessons, then not only do you sort of strip it of the context of who might have written down that history in the first place, but you have to grapple with the fact that there isn't a lot available in the historical record and that's not an accident. That's a, that's also as part of a structural process of of forgetting in contemporary disaster history. I don't I don't know what you think about about that second part that I added on there, but it that really got me thinking about the misuse of history in this pandemic.
1: I would just add that's also Benjamin, you know, that history is written by the victors.
0: Yeah.
2: I'll let John as the historian take this question but I do want to say and this is part of I think what I what I'm hearing in the second part of of what you added there Scott is you know when we were talking about medical shortages in the first thesis we uh, had in mind Palestine, really uh, Gaza and uh, un- underscoring the fact that, Uh, for indigenous nations uh, across the world. uh, State selections uh, of who lives and who dies, what's poisoned, what's not poisoned, who gets healthcare and who doesn't, how force is applied, uh, was present in great force, in great catastrophe, in great disaster, well before this moment of uh larger sort of panic so that might be as as your question speaks to a point about visibility a point about how history is told a point about oral history versus written history these different questions uh that um it's worth mentioning in this conversation because it was worth Mm. Bringing up in the in the writing about um, state elections,
0: John, just give you a chance to comment on on any of that.
1: Yeah, um, I'll maybe take this as an opportunity to bring in the second thesis, um, which mm-hmm. is basically asserting crisis for whom, and that mm-hmm. was another question that we really wanted to ask and mm-hmm. highlight, um, which is what I think Ben is talking about. And um, there's a really great uh, text by Dara uh, who we brought in as one of our contributors in the, 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 the panel, uh, the series where we invited other people to participate. Um, and she has this somewhat cynical, but really snarky line that uh, crisis is when bad things happen to privileged people. And her case study is the financial crisis and the ways that um, basically single Black women had been, you know, in huge rates of mortgage default um, for many years before 2007. Um, but it's only when it really hit the banks and when it hit um, the rest of the population that it became a, a crisis, which is something that she defines as um, something that the state can and decides is worthy of, of intervention. Um, and there, I'll just uh, mention one historical case that um, which I wrote a subsequent article about, is the the AIDS crisis. And for me, basically, um, there are all sorts of overlaps with medical experts. Of course, Fauci got his uh, career um, working on the AIDS crisis. And there are many, all sorts of levels of cultural uh, borrowings and and scientific borrowings and so forth. Um, But what for me was really salient about the AIDS crisis analogy is that it precisely illustrates the point of this second thesis. And it is something that I think we can learn from history, which is, uh, yeah, crisis for whom, you know, whose death is deemed crisis worthy um, versus whose death is sort of naturalized or, or even justified as non-crisis or you know, acceptable suffering or suffering that doesn't, doesn't shock us. Um, so those kinds of radical differentials in um, attention and you know, political visibility that Ben is highlighting are what we had in mind there.
0: There's another one of the theses which uh, I wanna ask you about. This is number seven, avoid the rhetoric of resilience, harnessed to latent normalcy. Again, I'm quoting, uh, the resilient individual springs back to a pre-crisis state. To call for resilience is to place the burden on those already burdened. To call for institutional transformation is to place a demand on those who claim to be public servants. The rhetoric of resilience, uh, in the last twenty years, has taken the field in emergency preparedness in, in the practitioner world. Um, resilience is uh, stands in for a whole package of concepts and and actions. So why do you take issue? I mean, you you explained why, but I want to draw you out a little bit more on resilience because yeah. you're picking a fight here, in a sense. I think in a in a useful way. But but why did this make it into the list of theses?
2: Well. I've been frustrated with the rhetoric of resilience for some time. I think if I were uh, an owner of, of, say, an oil company like uh, Enbridge uh, running through uh, uh, Line 3 in Minnesota, uh, I would love if the cultural politics was swept up in the rhetoric of resilience because it means, no matter how much the environment is polluted, no matter how much debt everybody is saddled with, no matter how uh, unequal the uh, healthcare system is to respond to people who are struggling, no matter how narrow the the wider safety net and sense of security is, that individual feels. Their struggle as a failure, as a kind of individualized failure to properly bounce back from a moment when the water is polluted, right? If you're an Ishinabe and, and there's a pipeline running through your wild rice land, uh, in Minnesota, then your, your cultural heritage and your family's, uh, memories and history have, have been corrupted or destroyed or treaded on in disrespectful ways. And then you are told culturally that in this context of pollution and cultural destruction, you need to, you need to get it together. You need to spring back from this in some way. And so we wanted to uh, press on this to say it, it, the individualized language of a resilient self is not the most robust way of thinking about this, that other traditions or other cultural politics give us a much better sense of how we might respond in community
0: to uh, what we're facing. Let me just stay with this for a second, because uh, resilience is a concept that, um, on, on on the one hand, I, I mean, I feel like sometimes it's coming from a place where there's many practitioners want to use it in a way to, to try to shine light on inequality and to try to actually point out in cases post-disaster, you know, conditions that led, to, you know, sort of, that allowed certain communities to, to do okay in a disaster or to keep their community together in a disaster. Mm. But it's, you know, Ben, what you're pointing to, you know, the problem with that is there's a slippage between the individual and the structural and it gets very murky. You know, was it that, and, and it often defaults to the individual story, because it's hard to tell community stories in disaster. They're complicated, they're messy, and it's actually one of your one of your later theses. It talks about the importance, it's number 11, the importance of sharing small stories and telling your own. A, so when the government is compiling stories of what happened after a disaster, you get a wild mess of things, like you would after any disaster, but oftentimes what makes it on the Cover of the brochure is the the individual who resilienced their way out of this right. terrible situation, which was indeed a failure of many generations of in deferred maintenance on infrastructure or, right. or structural racism in in lending or whatever, whatever it may have been. I I guess I'm not trying to give the government or FEMA an out here, but I do feel like we're caught in a in a bit of a trap as analysts with this because we want to be we want our analysis to be helpful but i've always i've struggled with how the intervention should work and i want to give you a chance to, to say a little bit more about this and then bring you in john because i think for these theses to do the work that you want them to do in the world they also have to be somehow translatable in in a, in a number of different kinds of genres not just the conversation we're having now but also in in art also in in governments I'm
2: sorry, Scott, are you directing this back at me? I
0: I, I was going to give you, yeah, I went on a rant and I wanted to see if you had any thoughts about it, but if you don't, it's, a, it's uh, okay. I just, I get worked up when I talk about resilience and the problem of the, so I'm with you completely on yeah. your analysis, but I want to know how you think we can, how that insight can do more work in the world. That's my question.
2: Yes. Yes. It's a good question. I think about this too, as a question of sort of organization between perhaps the heightened moments where these conversations are happening more often, say at Standing Rock or uh, around line three or in a Black Lives Matter march on 2020 to the, to the other moments, the moments between the, the camp and the march when the conversation seems turned down. Uh, uh, and I, I don't have a very sophisticated answer, Besides, you know, there are multiple levels that we, talking about this in our classrooms. We we publish something like this that's public facing. I think the more difficult moment for me with resilience is, and this is something one of our contributors to sentencing the present, Joy James, has written about with her concept of the captive maternal. There is a moment when uh, it is your family member or your partner uh, or someone in your community who is struggling with something where, uh, the small change or the, uh, attitudinal shift or the encouragement in the face of asymmetrical force is still something. <laughs> I don't know how to say mm-hmm. it. It could be a sort of a request for a reform that might not be sufficiently radical in the eyes of some, but is, and it might ultimately, as, as James has pointed out with the Captain Maternal, stabilize in some way uh this entrenched uh unjust brutal present uh nevertheless when you're facing uh, the request of your partner or whatever it is then uh that kind of human response that's called out is is a difficult case i feel that tremendously in in your question scott so that yeah
0: john let me just bring you in on this resilience issue if if you wanted to Say anything to it, because I think it particularly, again, it speaks to the last two theses, which are about um, privileging granularity, privileging small mm-hmm. stories, and avoiding cynicism and trying to to court the, the possibility for hope. Because I think a lot of times in, the, in emergency management, the rhetoric around resilience is meant to be that. It's meant to say, look, this is what gives us hope that this terrible thing happened, and here's mm-hmm. a person who persevered.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have to think about uh, resiliency as a category in my own work, I guess, or as a, as a response to catastrophe. Um, but basically, I think what interests me in the concept of catastrophe as opposed to something like trauma is that I'm really interested in, in the, the, the history level or the structural level of uh, ways that societies respond to and then remember, um, catastrophes, um, but this last point was very personal to me. Um, this line: "Cynicism courts a politics of catastrophe, while hope is the most essential antidote to such resignation." Um, possibilities for how the world could be better are the most powerful prism through which to critically refract the present, and that it's the task of theory to sustain them. So here we're clearly, you know, building on this kind of Bruno Latour uh, critique has run out of steam idea. Um, but the citation in the first line is to this article that I found really um, striking that one of the best predictors in 2016 of whether someone voted for Trump um, was whether they basically had given up hope on the future and felt um, left behind. Uh, the, inter- the survey questions would be things like, um, like, do you think the, the the future of your children will be worse than, um, you know, the opportunities that you've had? Um, and Trump voters were much more likely to, to uh, hold that very cynical view. Um, so that's something that it was important to us not to capitulate to that, even though we uh, obviously you know, are kind of critical catastrophists in a way, um, we didn't wanna make the theses totally kind of idealist or utopian, um, but about kind of small scale points of intervention, um, moments where we saw Transformation uh, that could be possible. And I'll just share um, a line from uh, Audrey Borowski, uh, was one of our contributors to sending, Sentencing the Present. And uh, the last line of her um, contribution has really stuck with me. I'll try to put it in the chat. She says, The Adorno esque tragedy of the present is not that the current world may be gone forever, but that we are disinclined to let it go. Um, this sort of uh, rhetoric that was omnipresent at the time of COVID about, you know, uh, everything we like is shutting down. um, All these things that we value are going to be gone forever. Um, You know, to hold space for thinking what parts about the present do we want to go forever? Um, And we don't, I don't think anyone mentioned this in the piece, but, you know, around this time, Bruno Latour was writing uh, this, this book that about uh, shutdown and how, you know, fossil fuel consumption like mm-hmm. nosedived uh, during the pandemic and that this was a kind of, you know, moment of interruption uh, like the ones that Benjamin called for of the kind of, you know, machinations of capitalism, uh, unfortunately mm-hmm. causing great suffering, not to romanticize that, um, but a moment of, of uh, ecological uh, transformation, you know, where there were, there was a fascination with ways that nature was was coming back, um, which were sometimes mythical and sometimes um, real, and sometimes part of, you know, proof that um, that the world and that you know fossil fuel consumption could drastically change. So those were the kind of moments that we tried to seize upon.
0: Let me just take a moment here to uh, remind everyone that you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking today with Ben Davis and Jonathan Catlin, and we've been talking in detail about their work on critical theory in the pandemic and their essay theses for theory in a time of crisis. And you can see that's also uh, connected to a second project. And I'm going to put the links up to these sentencing the present and archive of a crisis which is a set of conversations with um, you know, different thinkers who are bringing critical theory analytics to understanding the pandemic and putting it in some context. I want to... Um, I want to leave that for just a second, if it's okay, and actually turn to to memory. And I want to spend a moment talking, if we can, Jonathan and Ben, about uh, Jonathan's piece, When Does an Epidemic Become a Crisis? Analogies Between COVID-19 and HIV AIDS in American Public Memory. And this is an article that appeared in December of 2021 in the great journal, memory studies. So um, I have a list of people I want to get on COVID calls and already had you there because I wanted to talk about the theses. And then you publish this other thing. And then it's, it's like, OK, we're adding more things on to the conversation. But I think we have uh, sufficient time here to, to talk about this a little bit. And, and you weren't even referencing a little bit, John. And, and Ben, of course, invite you to come in and comment on this as well. But you now thinking about this analogy, um, just where you start with the title between COVID-19 and HIV/AIDS and American public memory, I guess I want to start with a sort of general question as to who is who who's using sort of historical analogical thinking in in this time. Where who are you, where are you spotting these discourses pop up? Because I'm always sort of really trying to be attentive to where people are trying to bring historical analogy particularly around disaster memory which is pretty impoverished in America frankly mm-hmm. but but we have seen these moments so where did you so i guess it's kind of an origin story of this article where did you start to see that discourse popping up and and where were you shining your light on that
1: well i have to say a lot of the sources for this piece are sort of uh you know the elite uh the new yorkers and like this kind of elite discourse um, in American letters, I guess you would say. Um, But actually, the thing that really got me um, thinking about this piece in a serious way was um, hearing on German radio, on Deutschlandfunk, um, a, 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 a live reading of Susan Sontag's The Way We Live Now, this famous essay from the AIDS crisis from 1986 being read out in German translation during the pandemic, during like early April. And the piece is um, famously kind of universal because it doesn't name the disease and everyone's kind of anxieties about it, that the patient that a patient is dying from. Um, and the piece is about reconstructing the dialogue of um, different people who go visit their friend on their deathbed. Um, and what I found fascinating once I kind of dug a little bit deeper is that actually, um, Sontag says this in interviews, um, actually the the hospital situation that she's thinking about is a friend who had a stroke, um, not HIV AIDS, even though that is the obvious context in which the piece was read in 1986. All of her close friends uh, who were gay men at the time died of AIDS. Um, so I thought about you know the way that um, these kinds of memories of, of crisis are activated basically in, in times of crisis, in moments of danger uh, as Benjamin called them. Uh, and then I started taking a little bit more uh, of a critical or sort of political lens on this when I started seeing people like Larry Kramer and Sarah Shulman and major activists in ACT UP interviewed um, to ask about the pandemic. And in some cases, like, for example, Larry Kramer simply said, like, there's no there's no analogy. Um, I have nothing to say about COVID. My experience gives me no special insight about this very different pandemic. So just shutting down the interviewer who wanted him to make this analogy, Um, but then some other, you know, other um, HIV positive or or ACT UP activists who really violently rejected the analogy um, because of the politics of crisis point that I was mentioning earlier, um, where people said, you know, this was in Larry Kramer's uh, own language from the 80s. This was a genocide. That is the concept that he used, um, having himself been, you know, descended from Holocaust survivors. Um, that this was non-crisis suffering, the AIDS crisis, for many years in the '80s, that was ignored. Um, it was not treated with state intervention um, until it was it was made into a crisis by activists, by the late only by the late '80s, after so many had already died. Um, so I became interested in the way that we reach for these analogies, but also they distort understanding, um, and they, uh, in this case. You know, it was really the difference between a pandemic that was potentially universal, um, although with, you know, racialized and other um, inequalities that became manifest versus a pandemic that was from the start uh, very specific to a one or a handful of marginalized communities.
0: I think it's, a, it's just stay with this for a second, that um, when people have tried to to reach for historical analogies for covid it's a lot of times in my observation, it's really just been to try to make sense of scale to say, this is a global thing. This is, you know, millions Mm -hmm. have died and therefore we need to look for other. And we want to, I credit when people try to get past war and they can find other, you know, Mm -hmm. terrible disasters beyond war. And so they begin to reach for 1918 or they reach for, for HIV AIDS. And again, I, I, I get where that's coming from, but as as you're pointing out, and as you're talking to, you know, about Larry Kramer and other activists, um, that com- that does a certain kind of explanation, but it's a pretty superficial explanation. So so why is it so persistent? Do you think?
1: Yeah, there was all sorts of um, reaching for uh, plague. Um, and I actually I edited this other kind of yeah, it was a conference review about uh, leading historians of different pandemics of cholera, of HIV. Um, that was held at Princeton, um, organized by Keith Wayloo, the historian of medicine. Um, and I wrote a piece sort of summarizing uh, different, you know, different pandemics that people were borrowing from. and. Uh, What was interesting, I think the article is by uh, Rosenberg is the name that's about the dramaturgy of pandemics. And what's interesting is just comparing a few cases, you know, you see, you know, some pandemics are extremely sudden, extremely dramatic. The way that people die um, is sometimes very quick. And AIDS doesn't fit any of these kind of traditional, you know, event like or dramaturgical um, examples of what we think of as like crisis pandemics. Um, But, yeah, there were all sorts of uh, analogies. You know, people were reading Camus' The Plague, um, all sorts of really grasping at uh, (laughs) thin air, um, very sketchy and very distant um, historical memories. And something I also reflected on in the piece is just that, um, you know, memory, the way that memory seems to work, um, we have mostly forgotten about the the Spanish flu. You know, it's not it's not in our living memory, even though it's. Historically, very important um, to people who know about American history or the history of World War One. Um, but HIV/AIDS was really on the tip of so many healthcare practitioners' minds. I bring up some kind of images um, in the piece from New York in the AIDS crisis. You know, similar scenes of bodies piling up in hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. The bodies were buried in the same place on Hart Island in the Bronx. Um, all these very visceral memories, especially among New Yorkers. Uh, who lived through that generation, but also people like Fauci, who you know have been in this kind of field of epidemiology for so many decades.
0: Yeah, I thought that was that's another interesting thing that's popped up in my conversations with healthcare workers and public health um, researchers. People like Esther Schernack, for example, who I've had on COVID calls many times, um, who's a physician and an epidemiologist from Philadelphia, and um, you know, there are a whole generation of public health you know experts who came up in the in the AIDS crisis. And so yeah. for them, that analogy is real and powerful. And it comes back exactly to a moment of sort of profound terror in the clinic when they were young and and trying to learn their their craft. And so, you know, that's another perspective on the way that memory. I worry that memory could be memories of COVID. Are are going to be hard to capture because many of them have. Hmm. um much of the violence has taken place inside the hospital is taken place in these incredibly stressful moments that will be hard for healthcare workers to unpack. Families were absent. I mean in that way, I do find the analogy powerful and, and useful. I don't know, Ben, I don't know if you want to come in on any of this, but you know just sort of generally talking about you know how we do try to rescue COVID memory with, with sort of trying to attach to analogs of recent suffering that could be useful to make sense with.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the points we made in our theses was about uh, sharing small stories and and gathering your own. And I think uh, it's one of these moments of even somebody there's, there's something of uh, perhaps empowering about the idea that, an archive from COVID could be somebody's daily journal entry, or, uh, you know, these reflections of human life in, in great isolation, and what existentially we have learned about ourselves from that difficulty. Uh, and so um, I'm invested in that, that question. And this is, in some ways contrary to what we were up to in the theses but it can take time to realize of course what what we were going through collectively and we wanted to flag this Hmm. methodological need for uh i don't know how to say it profoundly ordinary accounts of uh you know i remember my my partner dropping off uh groceries at the apartment building and then i would go downstairs and she'd be kind of 15 feet away and then you run back upstairs with the groceries it's like uh you know very ordinary scenes yes. that for all of us alive in this time will will mark a novel we read 20 20 years down the road or oh okay this is probably 2020 you know <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. just to pick up on that there's a uh yeah. One anecdote is there in one of the the uh, sentencing the present um, texts. There's a line about you know touching a doorknob or picking up a can of soup at the supermarket and like thinking that you might get COVID from it uh, because this was in March and people were were doing that still. They were cleaning their groceries and not touching doorknobs. Um, so already these a lot of the, these kinds of yeah daily routines seem um, sort of quaint to us now.
0: It's, it's why I ask people to share a memory on the yeah. the start, which I it was I'd started it unintentionally. And then um, but now we've, I've done, you know, hundreds of people have been kind enough to share. And and um, it's nobody has said I don't, well, I can't remember all of them, but I don't think anybody has said it's the scale of the thing. Nobody talks in broad strokes yeah. about big You're numbers. They talk about the door handle. It's exactly they tell the story that Ben just told. Or they talk about, and it's very sensorial usually. Uh, sound, The sound of something, the way something looks. They remember walking in a certain place. And of course, that's, those are the pieces that we're going to try, those shards that we're going to try to pull together. But the the grand gesture of memorial, John, is there's, there's a lot of sort of cultural beha- power behind that, desire for that. And again, it's not something. I mean, I don't take issue with the need for a Holocaust memorial. I don't take issue with the need for the AIDS quilt. I want those to be powerful and impressive and tactile. Uh, but I, I do worry. I don't know if there's any way out of this, but I do worry that sometimes they, they can be totalizing and overwhelming, and it's hard to rescue the smaller inequalities and injustices.
1: Hmm. Well, this was something I thought about in my piece through um, an interest in the AIDS memorial. And there were all sorts of connections um, where the the organizers of the AIDS memorial really tried to basically activate um, memory of the AIDS crisis during the pandemic. And there was even a case where um, a woman who had been making a uh, quilt, you know, it's, it's a giant quilt basically that weighs many, many tons because it has uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of panels on it uh, for people, Americans who've died of AIDS. Um, so it's, it's a tactile uh, kind of you know gentle, maybe even feminine uh, traditionally uh, art of quilting. And yet it's so huge and yet it's monumental. And that kind of capturing both of those things is um, what I really like about it. And I think why it's been such a successful memorial. So it gets moved around. It can be displayed in different places um, but also, when it is laid out, family members will often come and place objects on uh, the quilt, or, or, or lovers, or friends um, of the person that they lost. So it becomes kind of customizable in a way and very personal. And I think it's just a really, you know, uniquely successful project.
0: How will we do that with COVID? when the, because this, again, I think the parts of the criticism notwithstanding the the inequalities of COVID have been severe and they're still, and they're ongoing as parts of the West rush to the normal. The global South is vaccine, is waiting for vaccine. Um, very similar analogies there to, to HIV AIDS as an ongoing disaster. But then also even just to think in the United States, I mean, I, I come back to these stories of people having um, visits at the nursing home window or the memory care center window mm-hmm. and that that last year of their loved ones life as they were suffering from Alzheimer's and the the rules in this or that state were poor and that person died and to have those deaths dismissed because people were already in an advanced age or they were already in a in a nursing home to me is such a profound. Just a disgrace and injustice. and I just don't know how, I don't know if we have the memorialization tools to grapple with that. Ben, I don't know. It's it's more of a comment than a question. I just, I'm expressing to you both, I guess, my my deep concern that we don't have what it takes to remember COVID effectively.
2: Yes, I, I have a similar concern about, I, I don't know how to say it, as honored As I am, you're having us on the show. We can't say in any honest way the theses achieved a fraction of their ambition. Uh, So, for instance, one of the reasons we were talking about Joe Biden as an avatar of normalcy
1: Hmm.
2: had to do with the contested uh, Democratic uh, primaries and the question of, of. uh, Bernie Sanders and the question of uh, wider and deeper left in the US and I think you know I, I mentioned Stuart Hall at the beginning I think back often to how Stuart Hall ends his essay The Great Moving Right Show where he says in some ways we've been fighting on the wrong terrains or he has the uh, courage and humility to admit uh, a loss <laughs> And I wonder sometimes what that, uh, loss or as you're saying, Scott, inability to, to, to remember, uh, some of what's going on. The fact that, and I, I, I mean, I want to implicate myself in this also because I remember the first time I went out for a cup of coffee after kind of COVID drive through, you know, but the idea of even having a cup of coffee <laughs> was, uh, was quite the moment, not to mention, you know, how, how the beans still had to be picked during COVID, right? You know, it's the coffee still had to be shipped. And so there is, uh, there is a question left for me about what perhaps cultural terrain or psychoanalytic terrain, uh, people like us who take theory seriously, need to continue to work with in order to make sense of and build together mm-hmm. what we might need to still properly respond to the crises
0: before COVID, the intensification of COVID, and, and what we'll, we'll have left in the next few years. John, I want to give you the last word, but it sounds to me what, what Ben's um, suggesting here is a, a new set of theses but I, I, I or a, a response to the thesis over the passage of time, and the challenge, the, the trick there is, you cannot call it the end. The, there can be no, it can't be a final word. I don't, I don't think. But I, 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 li- I like this. I think I'm, I'm hoping you're going to take me up on this. That, <laughs> that if you, if you had done a thesis. Very similar to what you did with Hurricane Katrina. And there's sort of a version of this. The Social Science Research Council did a set of essays early after Katrina.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And to then come two years on and do it after. Um, there's be powerful analytic purchase in, in what, what the, the bridge across those two and an opening for a, th- for a third and, and beyond. Because I think what you've done and ha- must have a continuation. And But not in a sort of free-floating, but but directly contextually tied to the disaster at hand. Because while we have these opportunities, and I'm just being opportunistic here, but while we do have these opportunities, when the window is open, we've got to keep it open, I think. Ben, that's not exactly what you said, but I I just wanted to sort of add on to what you said there, because I think it's inspiring to me that I hope you will keep working on these.
2: I understand. Thank you.
0: John, last word here before we wrap up.
1: Yeah, I mean, just to second your point about context and chronology, um, I think that's so important, and to see you know how much has changed. And this is why I really stand by um, the most kind of flexible part of the thesis, which is that the grounds, the empirical grounds of theory, are always changing, and um, you know, theory needs to shift and pivot accordingly. And uh, it, one example of that that came up in the thesis is, um, I think on the same day as our thesis, actually, Judith Butler, the philosopher, uh, published a piece in which they said, um, the virus does not discriminate. That's the line. Um, because these racial um, fault lines that became so clear later in the pandemic had not emerged yet. But thinking about that kind of line now, I mean, there's been so much work on uh, inequalities um, in between, and that's the kind of moment where I think that you know theory um, has to and and has actually pivoted um, as the facts sort of changed. Um, And as a sort of countermodel of that, uh, Adam Kotzko just wrote a great piece about Giorgio Agamben, like one of the most famous like living philosophers and theorists, who at the beginning of the pandemic. Wrote pieces in this tradition of corona dictatorship, you know, using the, the philosophers that we really uh, respect, uh, Foucault and such on on biopolitics, um, and really the the recent pieces a kind of reflection on this this argument at two years, um, on how this uh, you know corona the totalitarianism thesis was became so overblown and was really a misuse of theory um, because. It hardened into an ideology. It really um, took on a direction that uh, ultimately fueled, you know, COVID denialism mm-hmm. and our uh, totally right-wing approaches uh, to the pandemic that the, its author might not have even uh, been been aware of or supported. Um, but because it was such such so rigid and not responding to empirical realities, um, it failed. Um, and as a final word, I'll just share how my my article on the AIDS analogy ends, um, which is basically to say that if there's one very simple uh, lesson to get from the AIDS crisis analogy, it's that um, you know decades on the AIDS crisis is very much not over. it's still a political crisis in the US and elsewhere. Um, and it depends really on your perspective you know and this this question we've been circling around crisis for whom? Um, that even as uh, the, the, that crisis is, is over for, for certain demographics, for people with health care, um, the AIDS crisis is very much not over. And I think it serves as a cautionary tale um, against the way that, you know, we all might have been thinking in March 2020 that um, the pandemic will be over. Um, I hope and I think we've all been sort of disillusioned of that uh, naive idea at this point. Um, but it really challenged our chronology of how pandemics work, how crises work. Um, I guess this all adds up to a plug for, for Scott, your concept of slow disaster. Um, but I think that's really what I would say two years on uh, that that COVID was and has been and will continue to be.
0: Well, let me just remind uh, everyone, you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 7 p.m. Eastern time, although these days we're doing them around the clock. And Many great guests coming up um, the rest of the week, including discussion with Kathleen Tierney, sociologist of disaster. We'll be picking up on previous conversation with Kathleen tomorrow, so please do tune in for that. And I want to thank my guests, Ben Davis and Jonathan Catlin. Uh, I've been very greedy with their time today. Uh, This is a conversation that I've been really looking forward to, and I learned a lot as I knew I would. Thanks to you both for the work, and best of luck with the projects you have ongoing.
2: Thanks, Scott. Thanks so
0: much, Scott. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.